Good morning, everybody. If you would go ahead and open up to Philippians. So last week we started our... Now, Belinda, can't talk during class. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to stop it. That seems unlikely. Oh, well, yes, ma'am. Um, so last week we started uh, Philippians and just a couple things that I want to kind of remind folks of and, and we'll talk about our, our plan for class today. So as a reminder, we are kind of building our own introduction to the book. So we are um, answering those who, what, when, where, why sort of questions. We are not trying to identify all the theological points that Paul is making yet. We're trying to understand things like who's the author, who's the audience, why might the book have been written, what can we learn about those who received it and those who sent it. Um, and we're going to hopefully finish that today. We got through most of chapter one last week. Uh, and so the first thing I want us to do is kind of just remind ourselves of what are some of the things we learned about the author and the audience last week? You don't know, look at verse one. <laughs> Okay, so Paul is in prison. We know he's taught the imperial guard. And I think the implication that we're making there is that Paul's the author, right? And who else is the author? Timothy. We kind of often ignore Timothy. Uh, it says Paul and Timothy. Um, the question was asked last week, is that because Timothy was essentially scribing for Paul? That's not my belief. It says that the letters from Paul and Timothy, not Paul inscribed by Timothy. Just a, a thought there. All right, what else do we learn? Yes, ma'am. It's not inscribed, or it's not, I mean, it says it's written, I think, because the whole thing is Paul's first person. Okay. So Julie says, like, the whole thing is written in Paul's first person, so she has some concern about that. What might be an answer to why that could be okay? Some of it's that it's actually Timothy's first person. And, and also, we haven't looked at Acts 16 yet, but what do we know about Paul and Timothy? That they were both in Philippi. Um, and so when we talk about the affection that they have and things like that, um, I, I, think, I think you can ascribe both to Timothy. I agree with you later in the book, Paul does... The, the, the author does reference Timothy in third person, uses his name. So I, I agree with you overall, but I do think we often kind of ignore maybe Timothy's role uh, in some of this. All right, what else do we, do we learn in chapter one about the author and the audience? That they had a great yeah, they had a great relationship, and we kind of illustrated that in a couple different ways. Do you remember any of those ways, Joshua? Our, uh, one way was his desire. He can't decide whether to go to heaven or stay on earth to Yeah, so first he is, Paul is writing that he is um, longing to go to heaven and be with Christ. He wants to be with Christ, but then um, he knows that living is good for them, and specifically, he says, he will choose to live 
because of the benefit it brings to them. Talk about being willing to sacrifice and love someone. You're, you're willing to forego some time with Christ in order to be with them now because it's for their good. Any other ways that that, that relationship is illustrated? Yeah, so phrases, I thank my God, I remember you continually, um, a lot of those. What were you going to say, Belinda? He addressed it to him. I mean, he included the overseers and deacons, so he knew they had those. Yeah, so he includes the overseers and deacons, um, kind of, I say includes, there's an and statement. He doesn't just say to the Christians in Philippi, he says to the Christians in Philippi and the overseers and deacons, implying he knows the congregation well. Also implying that, that the congregation has existed for long enough to have overseers and deacons. In addition to Allison's point around phrases, I would kind of add just words. He, he uses words like strong affection or I yearn to see you. It's not just like, you know, if I happen to pass through Philippi, that'd be great. He, he instead is, is using language that's very beautiful and very strong to talk about that uh, relationship. Um, Julie kind of hinted at this, so um, we know some things about Paul. She mentioned the Imperial Guard. Why does, why does the Imperial Guard matter to Paul right now? Because he's in prison. So Paul's writing this letter from prison. Uh, we have every reason to believe he's in Rome when he's writing it. Um, and we've said, in addition to, to Paul's situation, he's looking forward to heaven. He prefers death, but he's willing to stay um, on earth to help them. Um, there was, we didn't really get to the very last part of chapter one. There's one really important topic uh, that we didn't talk about in terms of his relationship uh, with them. So um, if you just want to take a minute and glance at 27 through 30, um, everybody look at chapter one, 27 through 30, and then we'll talk a little bit about um, what, what that meant for them as well. So what do we learn about Paul and the brethren in this section? They're going through a severe trial, it seems like. All right, they're going through a severe trial, and what does Paul say about that trial? Rejoice in that regardless of what Rejoice in it. So it gives them some instruction to rejoice in it. But where does the trial come from? What do you say? Okay, the trial comes from God. Um, I don't, what verse do you see that in, Peggy? 28. 28. Let me look. So, um, verse 28, and not being intimidated in any way by your opponents, this is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign of which is from God. Yeah, the salvation from God. I wouldn't read that as, as the, um, the trial is from God. But specifically, I want to get really like crisp. What's the source of the trial? Darlene knows. She's looking at me like she knows. 
So you say Romans, uh, I think we could say that, but just really clearly he says opponents. Like I, I just, I think it's important that we, these aren't trials that are happening um, almost by happenstance or um, because people don't, you know, aren't kind of giving them certain things. And instead it's opposition. These people are opposed to them. And what we learn more about this type of opposition and the way Paul talks about it at the end of the chapter. If you look at the end of the chapter, what do we learn about these opponents? Doing the same thing to Paul. Doing the same thing to Paul, um, and there's a past and present. So uh, the present, you now hear that I am facing. So that's his, his time in prison. But, but what about the time prior when Paul faced this sort of opposition? How do they know about it? Yeah, so you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face. So again, we're not, I don't know that we're going to have time to go back to Acts 16 and, and study all that this week. I'm going to encourage y'all to do that as your homework probably. So if you have, if you recall back to Acts 16, they get thrown in jail. Uh, that's where the story of the Philippian jailer comes from. Um, so since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face. So they, their opponents are the people that were opposed to him. Um, for example, if you kind of recall, some of that had to do with they, um, they cast a demon out that was um, kind of telling fortunes and the, the people that owned that, uh, that, that slave girl went and went to the magistrate and complained that they were opposed to the Roman government, opposed to the Roman gods and trying to create upheaval in the city. Essentially, they were arrested for what in our day and age we'd call disturbing the peace um, and thrown in jail. They were flogged and thrown in jail uh, as a result, which that flogging became super important because they didn't realize that Paul and Timothy were citizens of Rome and that that created some further backlash later. So they're facing the same sort of opposition that Paul faced and that he's facing now. So it's all the same sort of group um, or, or, or issues that are facing the brethren then. Anything else about chapter one we want to touch on before we go into more of the book? All right, we're going to read chapter two and three and then we will uh, talk about them. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit, and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourselves. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, 
So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out salvation with awe and reverence. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society, in which you shine as lights in the world by holding on to the word of life, so that on the day of Christ I will have reason to boast that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice together with all of you. And in the same way, you also should be glad and rejoice together with me. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be encouraged by hearing news about you. For there is no one like him who readily demonstrate his deep concern for you. Others are busy with their own concerns, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his qualifications, that like a son working with his father, he served me in advancing the gospel. So I hope to send him as soon as I know more about my situation, though I am confident in the Lord that I too will be coming to see you soon. But for now I've considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you, for he is my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to me in my need." Indeed, he greatly missed all of you and was distressed because you heard that he had been ill. In fact, he became so ill that he nearly died. But God showed mercy to him, and not to him only, but also to me, so that I would not have grief on top of grief. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you can rejoice and I can be free from anxiety. So welcome him and the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Since it was because of the work of Christ that he almost died, he risked his life so that he could make up for your inability to serve me. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, exult in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials, though mine too are significant. If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel in the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. But these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have righteousness that comes by the way of Christ's faithfulness. A righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. My aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him 
in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this. That is, I have not already been perfected. But I strive to lay hold of that which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have attained this. Instead, I am single-minded, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching for the things that are ahead. With this goal in mind, I strive toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let those of us who are perfect embrace this point of view. If you think otherwise, God will reveal to you the error of your ways. Nevertheless, let us live up to the standard that we have already attained. Be imitators of me, brothers and sisters, and watch carefully those who are living this way, just as you have us as an example. For many live about whom I have often told you, and now with tears I tell you that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, they exult in their shame, and they think about earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we also eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body by means of that power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. I'd like you to take a couple, uh, we'll do probably two minutes, just make some notes, focus on chapter two. What are the things that we learn about the author, the audience, the situation that they're facing, uh, reasons that the book was written, uh, things like that? What did y'all notice? I think we learn a lot about the Philippians in this chapter. Mark? He's using his relationship with them to make a point. Uh, verse 2, complete my joy. Um, he's using his own emotional state to compel them to be in the same mind. Um, and then in verse 12, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. It's also using um, the relationship to motivate them. Okay, so Paul is using his relationship to motivate, encourage, that sort of thing. What's that imply about their relationship? It's pretty strong. Like if he's going to be able to use it to motivate people from afar whom he hasn't seen for years, I think, that would imply that it's a pretty strong relationship. Uh, with that, what else do we learn about them? And they need some encouragement to get through that, some trials. Yeah, so he's not just saying that because Everyone needs encouragement all the time. That's a pretty good reason to say it. But, but what we learned kind of at the end of chapter 1 is they're facing some great trials. Those trials are significant enough that he knows about them. Um, we find out how he hears about them in chapter 2, I think. Um, so what else do we know? 
is urging throughout this examples of self-sacrifice that would lead to their unity and the way they should appear before the world. But sacrifice seems to come all the way through that with the example of Christ, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, and then of course beginning with them thinking not of themselves, but how they treat them. Yeah, so what Barry said is there's a, there's a theme of sacrifice through all of this. So you should write that down because next week we're going to talk about themes. Um, they clearly are willing to sacrifice and to serve. So how can we know that they are willing to sacrifice and serve from this chapter? Okay, so that's a different point that's also a good one. So Mara referenced the Paul's relationship when he, in verse, I think, 16 of, you knew me, you, did, you were a certain way uh, when I was with you and you were a certain way when I left or when I wasn't with you. So when, when I was with you and when I wasn't with you, you've been obedient through all things. He pays them a compliment. You know, this is different than, say, 1 Corinthians, which is like a, a scathing review in many ways of how those brethren were, were living their lives. Instead, much of Philippians is actually complementary towards the brethren and their faithfulness to the Lord. Um, but, but I kind of mentioned, how did they get the news about what's going on? And how did he get the news about what's going on in Philippi? They sent relief. And did they do it in the form of check? Kroger <coughs> food delivery? <laughs> no. They sent a person. They sent Epaphroditus. And from all, from everything we can tell, what are the what are the ways that Epaphroditus cared for Paul? Well, he, he, he traveled and brought all of what? What they sent, which we get the idea from chapter 2, but also chapter 4, that that is uh, a great deal of stuff. Like they sent money that provided food. Um, and then how did Epaphroditus himself care for Paul? He risked his life for him. Um, again, this doesn't happen uh, for people that you don't know well or don't care for deeply. Epaphroditus not only risked his life in coming, he then got sick while he was there um, and had to be cared for while he was there. Um, all right, what else do we learn about the authors and the audience from chapter 2? There's a couple things we haven't mentioned. What's their living Situation. What do we learn about Philippi here? It's a crooked and society. Yeah, so they're living in a crooked and perverse society. We can look at this in, I would say, two ways. One is, technically, we all live in a crooked, perverse in society. Society. I mean, sin has pervaded the world completely. 
there's not societies I know of that aren't crooked and perverse. So that's one way we could read this. What's another way we could read this? That, that, that maybe Philippi is exceptional. It's not just that we all live in a crooked and perverse society on average, but that potentially Philippi is far and away more crooked and more perverse. Um, I, I think there's some, there's some merit to that. If you go and read much about Philippi, it's essentially a mini Rome. Um, it is meant to be kind of a home away from home if you're a Roman citizen. And so it had all the creature comforts, if you want to put it that way, that Rome might have, um, including brothels, um, worship of the Roman deities, extreme connection to um, emperor worship and, and those things. So um, m- maybe you could say it's just crooked and perverse like everywhere else, but I think it may be worth considering that it's like above average <laughs> in its crookedness and perversion. Um, and then in that same section, how are we told that they are living amongst that crooked and perverse society? They are as lights in that crooked and perverse society. So despite the perversion, they have not allowed their light to be dulled and instead perhaps they're being given opportunity for it to shine even, even brighter. Um, and then I think there's at least one more thing that we talk about. It's kind of a, a repeat. Um, what does is, what is Paul highlight in the last half of the chapter um, related to Timothy? How does Timothy feel about them? Yeah, so, so what Darlene said is he has the same affection for them that Paul does. So um, his deep-seated love for um, Paul's deep-seated love for the Philippians is not solely from him. It's also part of Timothy, um, which is not insane. Um, Timothy was there from the beginning in Acts 16. He helped to teach these people. He endured persecution with them. And like Paul, the last thing he did as he left the city was made sure to stop and talk to Lydia and the other brethren that were gathered so they could have one last moment before he leaves Philippi. Timothy loves and cares for them deeply. All right, um, let's look at chapter 3. We'll take another minute and a half or so for you to kind of look through that and jot down a few notes about... Um, Paul, Timothy, the Philippians, and the situation. All right, in chapter 3, there's some repeated information. But it's kind of stated again. So what do we learn about Paul? That's kind of a, maybe don't learn it, but it's re-emphasized here about Paul and his relationship with them. Um, 
issuing a warning because he recognizes the situation they find themselves in is a dangerous one. Yeah, so he's recognizing their situation. And we've talked some about that situation. It's that they're facing opponents. And we actually learned something new. So in uh, chapter 1, who were the opponents that we talked about? The same ones Paul had from his time before in Rome. The Romans themselves are people of, call it, Roman relationship. But we learn more here about these opponents. Or opponent group number two. And who are they? The Jews. Yeah, so those are, those are Jews. Are they just Jews? They're a sect of the Jews that is highly proud of their of their status. Well, they're similar to what Paul was. So, Chip has said a sect of the Jews. You said they're proud of who they are, so maybe they're Pharisees. Your point? I don't think that. Like Galatian false teachers. Yes, I think this is the same issue that Paul faces in Galatians, uh, where even Peter was taken in. And they were forcing, essentially, Christian, Gentile Christians to become circumcised because they were saying that unless you're circumcised, you can't be part of God's family. You can't be one of Abraham's children that receives the promise unless you also take part in circumcision. That's, wh- that's why in 3 verse 2, he refers to them as those who mutilate the flesh. And then immediately says, we are the circumcision. Right? So there's really two groups of opponents in this book. One is Romans who are seeking to tear down Paul because they think he's opposed to the government, essentially. And then there's another sect that perhaps is more problematic. And that is these Judaizing teachers. That's, that's, the, that's the way commentaries will refer to them. These Judaizing teachers who... They ascribe to Christianity. They believe you should be baptized and they believe in some of the teachings of Christianity, but they can't forego the physical relationships that they believe provided salvation for the Israelites and the Jews. You, know, you get the feeling from this that, that these Judaizers, as they're called today, basically roaming the empire. <laughs> Looking, you, you, just, you just get the feeling that that's... Because there's not a Jewish synagogue here. They're, right. We, there's so few Jews that there's some women meeting out by the riverside. So you get the idea that he's saying, even if they're not even present at the moment, just be aware. They're, they, they'll come by any time. Yeah, so Barry references that, and you know, lots of places that Paul traveled on his journeys, there were synagogues. If you go back to Acts 16, you'll note that, that Paul and Timothy go down to a place to pray by the river, is what it said. That means that there was no synagogue there. Um, the technical standpoint is that you had to have at least 10 Jewish men to establish a synagogue. And so that most likely means there weren't at least 10 Jewish men in Philippi. They go down, they find Lydia who, as you read, uh, is a believer. She's a Gentile, but she believes in Yahweh. 
and then they, that's, that's really how the church gets founded is they teach Lydia about Christ. So these Judaizing teachers are going places that they, there aren't even really that many Jews. Like they're, they're roaming the, the country kind of looking for Christians to um, indoctrinate, put their teaching upon however you want to, however you want to frame it. Um, what else do we learn about Paul here in chapter 3? Danny? He was one of those people. Yeah, he emphasizes that he was one of those people. That if there's a desire to cling to human credentials, well, Paul can do that. Um, but that he has moved past that. Yeah, one time he was very proud of it. Yes, at one time he was very proud of it. Um, uh, I wouldn't say anymore, especially since how does he regard those things now? No. As dumb, as horse manure, you might say, in relation uh, to what he's gained through Christ. Um, there's at least one more thing that we learn about Paul and his long-standing relationship with them in this chapter. I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 1. Yeah, what Michelle said is, he's written to them before. We don't have that letter. Can you think of another letter like that where we find out that they've been, something's been written to before, but we don't have that book? Yeah, 1 Corinthians. Talks about, well, I wrote you before. I told you about these things. Like, well, we, we don't have that. It's like zero Corinthians or something. We don't have that. We don't have whatever you know, first Philippians was, we don't have that either, right? So we kind of have to assume, but he says that he's written all these things again, which is interesting. He, he kind of almost says like, I've told you this before, I'm going to tell it to you again. It's still important. It was important then. It's important now. It's to safeguard your soul is why I'm doing it. All right. Uh, let's look at chapter four. Um, Um, there's really just a couple things I want to take note of here. Um, but let's go ahead and read the whole chapter. I was going to try to get cute. Well, we won't do that. So then, my brothers and sisters, dear friends, from the long to see, my joy and crown, stand in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I say also to you, true companion, help them. They have struggled together in the gospel ministry along with me and Clement and my other co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
If something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And what you learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I have great joy in the Lord because now at last you have again expressed concern for me. Now I know you were concerned before but had no opportunity to do anything. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in any circumstances. I have experienced times of need and times of abundance. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. Whether I go satisfied or hungry, have plenty or nothing, I am able to do all things to the one who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you did well to share with me in my trouble. And as you Philippians know, at the beginning of my gospel ministry, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in this matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, on more than one occasion, you sent something for my need. I do not say this because I am seeking a gift. Rather, I seek the credit that abounds to your account. For I have received everything and I have plenty. I have all I need because I receive from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, very pleasing to God. And my God will supply your every need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. May glory be given to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Give greetings to all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers with me send greetings. All the saints greet you, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul gives us a little bit more color here about why his relationship with them is so deep and connected. What, what's he tell us? They help supply his physical needs. Yeah, he had physical needs. Even when no one else was supporting him, they supported him and supplied uh, that need. Which is an interesting, like if you look at the first of the book and the end of the book, in the beginning of the book, do you remember the phrase that's used about how their relationship with evangelism and the gospel Drew says yes. What is it, Drew? They shared in the gospel with him. Um, In the net version, I think it says they were participants in the gospel with him. They were hand in hand with him, though separated by hundreds or thousands of miles, because they were taking part in that gospel work. Um, Do we learn anything else in here folks want to take note of? Julie, like, has her hand half up. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, well, I said, what did you learn? <laughs> this isn't a time for questions, Julie. What's up? Okay, in chapter 2, he urges their unity. Yeah. And there's this little tiny thing about Yodians and Tiki. So maybe, we didn't talk about this in chapter 2, but maybe is there some, because of the persecution, or maybe because of the pressure that they're, and because of those false teachers, that they're divided a little bit? Yeah, so I love what Julie's done here. So there was a comment from Paul in chapter 2, you need to be united. We've talked about inferences, right? You can infer frequently that when someone's given a specific teaching, they need that teaching. So if you're being told you need to be united, it's reasonable to think that maybe you got to be told that. And then in, in chapter 4, we see this thing about Euodia and Syntyche. Um, I think there's some, some truth in that. I would also just say, like, 
Can you imagine having a squabble or an argument and you are called out for eternity? Like 2,000 years later, we're still wondering about what Euodia and Syntyche did besides not agreeing in the Lord. They're listening to the reader of the church. They're sitting over here, one sitting over there, one sitting over there. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty rough. No, I think, th- I think there's good, good merit in that, Julie. Anything else? It doesn't seem like anybody else is helping huh? Why do you say that? Because it says no other church here. So um, I think that, so, so what Alan references that it seems like no one else is helping him. I, I don't agree with that. I think this is limited to a point in time. As you Philippians know at the beginning when I left Macedonia. So I think it's specifically related to that to that time. Yeah, we, we have lots of examples of other churches supporting Paul. For example, you could look at 2 Corinthians where it talks about that they, no one else took part in giving as they did, giving even beyond their means, for example. That was Macedonian churches. Yeah. What else? I really love 22. Verse 22, where he says, all the saints greet you, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Paul got taken to Rome and the gospel got taken there too. And that went everywhere, to the imperial guard, to Caesar's household. Uh, what a wonderful thought. Um, lots of wonderful things are said about the Philippian brethren. I think it, as a way to close, what I might urge you is to think what is said about the Philippian brethren that you would like to be said about us? And how can we attain to that goal um, of being, for example, participants in the gospel, just as the Philippian church did? Next week, we're going to uh, do similarly. We're going to um, read the book again, and we're going to identify things that we see in the book, whether that's themes that are being taught, um, phrases that are repeated, topics that seem important. We're going to kind of build that out. Everyone will kind of identify different things there. Then the week after, Drew's going to teach when I'm out of town, and we'll build some summaries of the book um, for, the, for the group. Thank you all. I uh, appreciate your participation.